Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We're delighted to be joined by Karis Roberts of the IPPR. Welcome, Karis. Hi, Martin. Thank you very much for joining us. Steve, welcome. Thank you, and welcome, Karis. So let's start. The economy is reeling from the double whammy of COVID-19 and the impact of Brexit. That doesn't even begin to mention longer-term challenges, inequality, demographic change, climate change, technological revolution. And to discuss these challenges and what we do about them, we've been joined by Karis Roberts. So please introduce yourself, say a little bit about your work at the IPPR, the Commission on Economic Justice, and maybe the history of IPPR and how it's got to where it is today. Sure. Um, well, I'm executive director at IPPR and have been doing that role for about a year. Um, and I previously led our work on economic justice. Uh, my work at IPPR has focused primarily on the nature of our economy and its features that create and perpetuate inequality. So, for example, I've looked at wealth inequality, automation and inequality dynamics in production, tax, work, and who and how um, the economy is benefiting people. And a lot of these themes were part of a big body of work that we did a few years back, uh, which was the Commission on Economic Justice. Um, And this was a commission that brought together people from across the economy, from citizen organisers to unions to business leaders to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, And it was a very good example for those who aren't familiar with how think tanks work and how IPPR works of what we do. So we considered uh, across the piece and we wanted to give a kind of diagnosis of the moment in which the economy found itself. Um, and what could be done to improve it, not just from a kind of prosperity perspective, but also a justice perspective. And the final report of the commissioner's prosperity and justice. Um, and critically, we always consider policy with a political lens, not just a technocratic lens. Um, unfortunately, we can't be benevolent dictators and that wouldn't fit with our democratic principles either. Um, So the commission really brought together people to give this diagnosis that also uh, tried to assess the political economy um, of what we were looking at. I think in terms of um, IPPR itself, uh, we've always sought to provide ideas to push forward progressive change. um, And we're kind of unashamedly progressive in our values. I think where that progressive boundary lies shifts over time. We're always pragmatic, so we're seeking uh, to kind of operate at that boundary. Um, And where we are now is a point of, and we can talk about this um, later in in the discussion, but where we are now as a society is, in my view, a point of major decision about our future and what route we take. We're facing... um, a kind of confluence of crises around the economy, environment, um, how we relate to one another and our democracy. And in my view, short-term fixes, technocratic fixes, are insufficient to address that. So at IPPR, we're thinking about those different crises um, and what the practical but bold measures are that are needed to address them. And Karis, I think you've already answered this to an extent, but um, when I was sort of working in a Westminster environment, people would say to me that IPPR was a uh, a sort of new Labour think tank. I know that's probably pigeonholing too much and um, might resist that, but that was perhaps how people presented it back at the time. I wondered about, uh, did you have any reflections on sort of the changing Labour politics? Obviously, you had the sort of uh, post-New Labour, you had the Ed Miliband, then the, the Jeremy Corbyn period, and Labour politics moving left. 
and uh, and now me back to centre and Starmer. How how have you, how has IPPR's sort of approach changed with that, or have you changed with that, or have you done your own thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, people will often say to me, "Oh, you're." Blair's favourite think tank and now you've got quite a different politics and it comes back to what I was saying about where we think that boundary lies and where politics is at the current time. We're not an ideological think tank in the sense of having fixed answers that stay the same over decades. Instead we look for the problems um, as we see see them at the time um, and where the politics is as well. Um, So I think you know certainly uh, in rhetoric and in terms of how bold some of our work is, that probably has shifted, but it's still based on that political analysis, if that makes sense. So you've talked about um, uh, the moments of change of decision. I assume that would be with relation to Brexit and to to the impact of COVID. Um, So could you maybe expand on some of the long-term trends and explain sort of what they are and why we're facing them at this moment, not obviously just because of Brexit and COVID providing sort of decision points, but um, how you think those things are going to work going forward and the possible, both possible options and what you might prefer to see. Yeah, I mean, I think this really is a moment. I think the the third very obvious uh, kind of moment that I'd add to both Brexit and COVID Um, is the environment and the environmental collapse that we face. And I say environment rather than climate, because I think the kind of poorer cousin that has paid less attention in this is nature and the collapse of our natural system, um, which is a problem in itself, but also feeds into the the climate debate. Um, So we've got these kind of storms coming down the road in terms of the economy. And I think I'd say we are at a decision point um, that is partly an economic decision point. I think there are some really interesting debates, um, for example, at the moment about the scale and nature of government intervention in the economy. Obviously, we face this uh, completely huge crisis and unprecedented, not because pandemics haven't come before, but because the government response to it has been unprecedented around the world. Um, and I think that does present those three different things going on, do present a moment to reassess our uh, our economy and how it's operating. But then as well as that, I think the politics of this is really important to think about. Um, and firstly, in the sense that, you know, I think over the past 10 years, what you see in the different referendum results, what you see uh, in some of the kind of electoral changes that are going on is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, I think it's impossible to completely isolate that from how the economy has been managed over the previous decades. Um, And so there is uh, a moment which could be taken to shift how how our economy operates. Um, And I think, by the way, that that's partly about a kind of political party project. Um, But it's also broader than that. So one of the things that we sought to do through our Commission on Economic Justice was to change the weather um, and the terms of the debate that economic policy was being discussed around. Uh, So... I think in some senses, we have been successful along with others acting in the space. Uh, we now have a conservative government that is considering much greater economic intervention, for instance. Um, and I think if they, that has kind of served them in electoral terms. So it's about a broader shift than any one party, certainly. Um, I think in terms of whether a kind of a big 
change does result is still up for debate. Um, certainly, you know, there are, there are forces that will push back on that and won't be wanting to see those big changes. And you see that in internal debates within the Conservative Party, for instance. But uh, I do think that those crises do lead to a kind of economic moment and a political moment of decision uh, for the UK, but also other developed countries around the world. Thanks. So what are these sort of big changes that, that you're talking about? And is, does it essentially uh, return to, or does it go beyond the old state, more state or less state? You know, going from the old sort of, um, you know, the thatcher Reagan settlement of get out of the way, leave market and people to do what they do, is the, obviously with the furlough scheme and others, we've seen the role of the state massively increase. So is that the, the essence of the de- this debate that you're talking about and this potential change, or is there more to it? Uh, it's a very big question. I'd say it's part of it. Um, so I think our view is that uh, it's not enough to kind of redistribute after the fact. Instead, we need to fundamentally change how our economy operates and what we would mean by that is in a few key ways and I can talk um to some of them in terms of what uh what the debate is I think there is a kind of emerging consensus certainly on much to the left but I think it stretches across the center and into the right that we need a more active and involved state to direct the economy towards social and environmental goals and um, but that's not just about you know, the size of investment or so on. It's about how the state operates and how it works with businesses, the private sector, um, and, you know, even down to the community level to achieve those different aims. Um, And our argument is that, and I think this is becoming more broadly accepted, and certainly in COVID we've seen that it's true, is that markets are socially constructed. So there's no such thing... Um, in our current world as a market that doesn't that exists separately to the state and the rules of the market are set by regulation and the kind of the very license to operate is a social license to operate uh, and a government license to operate and so it doesn't make sense to think of it as is the state going to get involved or not the question becomes the nature of that involvement Um, and in particular whether uh, the state should get involved as i said to direct the economy towards particular goals so for instance on net zero i cannot see how net zero can be attained without that coordination effort from the government to give policy certainty to create markets and so on but it's not about saying we are going to expect the state to um completely stump up all the investment for this it's about how do we create that social partnership how do we incentivize investment in those different goals sorry Um, sorry. just on that specific point so i know that there's um increasing um investor sentiment in favor of what would traditionally have been sort of social justice goals around greater diversity in um representation at senior levels of companies greater moves towards um rewarding companies that uh whether invest in environmentally friendly businesses or practices and punishing those that don't so is it about sort of capturing that sentiment and if the state's the best place to do that doing that set in the terms with regulation but also sort of stepping out of the way sometimes to allow 
sort of um, consumer sentiment to flourish in those areas. Perhaps. I, I am slightly sceptical that consumer sentiment will get us there fast enough, particularly, and, you know, there, it's thinking about the kinds of different roles that different actors play. Um, consumers cannot make those decisions without effective, trustworthy information that probably comes back through regulation that tells them about the impact of the different uh, the different products that they're consuming and so on. Um, so... I think it's about how government can create an environment in which um, in which it makes sense to invest in those things. And it's certainly not always hitting uh, businesses over the, over the head with a stick. I think, as you say, there are some kind of good actions being taken um, in certain parts of the business community. But it's, for instance, creating a level playing field so that those businesses that do um, wish to, uh, you know, offer offer good wages to their employees, have really uh, transparent supply chains and so on, actually can compete rather than us all being in a race to the bottom that ultimately is destroying our um, natural environment and leading to really poor social outcomes. Well, that seems like a perfect segue to talk about um, the, the inequality and insecurity that you've sort of covered in uh, the IPPR's commission. So can you talk a little bit more about inequality and insecurity? And your- yes, so um, this was a big focus of the commission, as I said, in terms of uh, trying to identify the sources of inequality and also economic insecurity and the kind of the cycles that those two things become involved in. Um, and by that, I mean, for instance, you know, economic insecurity is not a good basis on which to have stable and sufficient demand and that is vital for a prospering economy and so on. Um, And the the central premise of a lot of our work is that letting the economy do its thing and then redistributing after the fact is, if it ever was good enough, is no longer good enough. And that's for a few reasons. Firstly, that it's kind of demonstrably ineffective currently. So if you look at... um, what's happened to GDP per worker against uh, average earnings, you find that those two things have actually separated. So um, GDP per worker is no longer a good predictor of average earnings across the economy. Secondly, I think that approach of redistribution leaves itself very vulnerable to politics. So I think it's quite striking that, you know, um, George Osborne and David Cameron could come in in 2010 and start dismantling many of the social protections um, that had been established by previous governments um, and play a very political game about shaping uh, the public sentiment towards those, those sorts of measures. And then thirdly, I think it doesn't work anymore because um, it, there's a sense of dignity and self-worth that comes through having a proper stake in the economy rather than being given uh, given cash through redistribution And so for these reasons, our view is that rather than focusing on that redistribution point, it's absolutely essential to look at uh, how the economy works and to hardwire the economy for justice. And, you know, there will always be an important role for the welfare system, particularly as uh, families come in all different uh, forms and sizes. And it's extremely important for child poverty to um, make sure that that welfare state is there. But you also need to tap the source of inequality um, and is, this is essential to fix our politics as well as our economy 
And in terms of how you actually do that, I think the answers come down very much to thinking about power and where power lies, lies in the economy. So, for instance, many of our recommendations, economic recommendations, come back to how can we uh, shift power from uh, capital owners and from business owners towards workers? How can we shift power from very large monopolistic firms to new entrants, more competitive markets? Um, how can we make sure that actually where the public has uh, invested, so socialised risk or socialised investment, actually the public can also share in the returns. Um, and all of these things uh, do come back to that question of power. And so that, that's the thread that you'll see running through a lot of our, our ideas in this space. Thanks. Can you then just talk about, as you touched on with the um, Conservative-led coalition government and then Conservative-majority government, both led by... Cameron with Osborne as Chancellor and the impact of austerity. So how important is austerity across the last decade or so against underlying forces, whether that's the industrialisation, um, the movement of, sort of more, ba uh, more manual jobs abroad, the focus on sort of universe, you know, sending lots of people to university and as against the deprioritization of vocational non-university educated skills. So how, what's the interplay between uh, the sort of short-term, relatively short-term, we're talking over a decade now, of austerity, versus some of those longer-term, more sort of global changes in the, in the labour market? I'd start by saying that austerity has been absolutely disastrous for the UK and has completely failed, even on its own terms. So there's obviously, uh, well, perhaps obviously to listeners of this podcast, um, been a very big uh, impact on people and their lives, uh, child poverty and so on. But economically, I'd say it's also been a big problem too. Um, there was even an article, I think this week, by Martin Sambu, uh, Alfie Sterling at the New Economics Foundation has done work as well on this to show the austerity effectively sucked demand out of the economy at precisely the time when it was needed. And this has resulted in lower investment. Um, now the UK already had low investments. So this was, has been really unhelpful. And one of the results of that, and this is contested ground, but I think there is um, an emerging strong um, body of evidence on this, that that uh, uh, taking that demand out of the economy has actually led to the productivity stagnation that we've seen since 2008, um, when essentially productivity dropped off trend and hasn't really risen since. Um, so I think it's been a really big problem. However, um, one of the things we've identified through our work is that actually the problem started a long time before that. I would slightly question, I think, your your term underlying forces, because that gives the sense somehow that they're exogenous, that um, they're kind of features of a global economy uh, that can't be changed. And I don't think that's true. A lot of these have come about through policy decisions. So, for instance, if we look at um, the UK's flexible labour market, uh, which is likely to have had an impact on productivity, because quite frankly, if you're um, a firm that can hire by the hour, what incentives do you have to invest in your workforce? Um, very little. Uh, that has come about partly uh, through policy choices and an explicit third-way choice to 
uh, to have a flexible labour market, to encourage people into the labour market, taking a job, any job, rather than one that really utilises their skills and uh, develops them. Similarly, if you look at um, uh, house prices, for instance, um, I think the choices around uh, housing policy, and particularly the kind of the treatment of housing um, uh, in terms of macroprudential policy and tax, uh, is likely to have contributed to house prices rising four times faster than wages in the two decades after 1997. So many of these problems go back um, longer. I'd actually say the pivotal point that we should be looking from is 1979. Um, and in terms of the kind of the financialization of our economy since then, uh, and the many of the kind of the threads of how our economy has changed, I think go we need to be looking back over the past um, four decades rather than thinking just about that last decade. So it's not to detract from the importance of austerity and shaping the outcomes we have in the economy today is absolutely critical. But that is kind of, it, the answer is unfortunately even more complicated and challenging in a sense because it goes back longer. Steve, did you want Yeah, it, it sounds like, and I think from the answer to the last few questions as well, that one of the themes, and correct me if I'm wrong, Karis, is about challenging some of the norms that we often call neoliberalism uh, and the idea that the government should have limits on its involvement in the economy, etc. Uh, is that is that a correct characterization? I know it's a very high level one, but also more importantly, do you have a sort of feel for where uh, IPPR would now draw the line? If, if you know, if in the past, for example, people have said we should only intervene when there's clear market failure. If we're going beyond that, what's the point at which the state should get involved, and, and at what the point should it perhaps not get involved in the economy? So I think that's a correct characterization. Um, you know, there, there are many debates over the meaning of neoliberalism and its usefulness as a term, but certainly in terms of how it's under, commonly understood, I think um, that is precisely what we're arguing against. And specifically, actually, um, partly about the kind of the features of neoliberalism that seek to insulate and isolate the uh, the economy from politics. And um, I don't think it's possible to to do that. Um, and I think it's convenient for people who benefit from our economy as it is set up, uh, if we do believe that they, they can do that. In terms of where we draw the line, um, do you, uh, for instance, um, you know, talked about, or oh, I was just talking about the kind of the role of the state in directing the economy towards social goals, uh, that does go beyond a kind of market failure frame to wanting to shape the economy. Um, that doesn't uh, as we discussed, so I don't think that collapses down neatly into a kind of state versus market, state versus business um, kind of binary. I think it's about the relationship, a, a different relationship between the state and business. And actually one that can very much benefit the private sector. Uh, if you look at the kind of um, what determines uh, kind of business confidence and so on, Having that clear direction, I think, could be very beneficial to the private sector. It's not about a kind of opposition in that sense. I think in terms of where we draw the line, I I, I don't know if I can answer that because I'm not sure if I have a clear in mind continuum <laughs> that we would be kind of drawing a line on. But I do think it's uh, what we're trying to do is reconceptualise um, that relationship uh, of kind of social social partnership and reconceptualise the nature of the state. Um, and, and one thing that I think 
maybe does fall onto that continuum and we haven't talked about yet is um thinking about who owns the who owns the economy um and in particular you know if there was a kind of consensus that actually ownership is better in private hands in the past um i don't think we'd agree with that i think um for certain parts you actually would want uh the the government to own a stake partly so that if you're socializing the risks you're also socializing the returns so for instance we've uh, recently been arguing for public equity stakes uh, in return for kind of what people are calling bailouts as part of the covid recovery um but i think also it's not just a kind of again not a simple private sector public sector ownership binary i think one of the kind of interesting things um, debates that is going on in political economy currently is how you can encourage and support different models of ownership that are more democratic than they have been in the past. Um, so, for instance, if you think look at the kind of land and property market, the community land trust model and so on, are there ways that you can empower people to have a proper stake in the economy from the national level through something like a sovereign wealth fund, which we've argued for, down to the local level, so for instance, and community level, so through, for, for instance, community land trusts. And that's quite a different shift in thinking, both from a neoliberal approach and also from a kind of more traditional public sector ownership approach. So I just want to ask one thing before we move on from this section, which is, are there models elsewhere that you're sort of looking to i mean are we looking at a sort of scandinavian style more sort of social democratic ideal where a lot more redistribution might take place before government gets involved some of this more sort of interventionist is that a fair characterization what are the other models that you might be looking to if there are any or is this purely a sort of you know we've started from this is where we are in the UK at this point in time. And what we need to do is X, Y, Z, rather than, you know, someone else has done something that we can learn from. Yeah, no, I certainly think there's a lot that the UK learn, can learn from other places. And through our work, we've looked at quite a few different examples of that. So, you know, the Scandinavian countries, as you mentioned, and um, actually one of the one of the ideas that we explored uh, from Norway was whether kind of more transparent pay could lead to greater pay equality, for instance. Um, we looked at Germany and uh, the kind of the greater involvement of unions in decision making there um, and the kind of uh, the involvement of workers in firm level decision making. I think there are interesting learnings there. We also looked at, for instance, um, as part of our work on digital platforms and how to make the most of publicly held data, we looked at uh, some of the um, projects going on in Barcelona in Spain. So I think there are a whole range of lessons. I don't think we're advocating for a kind of a shift to a particular um, a particular model or a particular variety of capitalism. I think instead um, we're we've tried to put together a kind of forward-facing agenda that draws on those different ideas and to to come up with something that is uh, specifically a way forward for the UK. I think on the international picture, though, I do think it's really interesting to see what President Biden is doing in the US. Um, And, you know, obviously some way off a lot of the things that we've been talking about today but in terms of uh, 
the tax changes that he's been proposing and more um, stronger taxes on capital gains, for instance, uh, and also the kind of uh, it, the emphasis that he's placing on the role of government through its stimulus package to um, achieve better outcomes. Um, so not just uh, seeing people as kind of pass through for stimulus spending, but actually how can we use this moment to, of getting out of COVID to try and create a fairer country? I do think it's really interesting to to see that debate progress as well. So if we need to go green, how we do that? What role for sort of technological change? So how would you assess the importance of those particular challenges? For me, the environmental agenda has to be absolutely centre stage of any progressive politics, of any politics full stop, to be honest. Um because of the pace of change that is required uh, and because of the change that is coming down the track. Um, so we know that change is coming. We're going to have to alter uh, many things across our economy if we're to meet um, you know, the, the, gov- the government's own targets. And we've, you know, uh, 6.3 million jobs, I think it is, are going to change in some way. If we do nothing, if government does nothing, there will be big losers from that programme. And I think you could see a repeat of some of the, um, what I would call mistakes in the past of letting communities and places um, kind of wither or not not join the rest of the country in terms of uh, moving forward with the change. Instead, I do think there is actually a moment and an opportunity to shape. Um, And I think... One thing that we're trying to do is we're running an environmental justice commission at the moment. We're trying to set out what a positive agenda could be so that as you're doing that change, you can make sure it results in fairer outcomes. I think thinking about your technological change question and how this really relates to a green agenda. Certainly, we definitely need um, a big advancements in how we how we produce our energy, how we distribute our energy how we move around, um, everything really uh, will need to change. And technology has an important role to play in that, I would say. Um, But I don't think we can see it as someone the right, I think, do as this fix, a silver bullet that's going to come along and fix everything for us. Um, Certainly, our view is that actually it's the nature of our economic system that is uh, driving climate and environmental breakdown and that means we need to shift how the systems work as a whole um, so we can't wait for technological solutions only and we also can't keep this confined to one brief in Whitehall um, instead everything we need to do every investment project needs to be at least compatible with or driving towards um, net zero and shifting shifting how we operate and um, I do think there are opportunities in that. So, for instance, we've set out how uh, 1.6 million green jobs could be created by 2030 across the UK and geographically well-distributed jobs, actually. So, obviously, there's a huge focus in government, but also by the public on regional inequality at the moment. Um, To take an example, retrofitting our homes uh, is obviously not going to be confined to London and the South East. There are big opportunities to create jobs across the country. Um, so uh, there are positives to be won, but there is quite a lot of work to get there, I would say. 
Okay, so we're going to start to draw all of these strands together. And what do you make, firstly, of the idea of a Green New Deal or something like that, which could uh, combine, as you mentioned, the importance of environmental, um, I suppose, outcomes and move to net zero with shifting the economy, whether through jobs and skills and other measures towards meeting those outcomes? As a, as a policy programme, I think a Green New Deal is spot on. I think we do need to transform how we live and how we work. I think um, we're, we clearly need um, big measures from government to help the economy emerge uh, well on the other side of COVID. Um, and, you know, one of the most interesting things I think about is, that takes place in that Green New Deal conversation is about looking beyond what a kind of very firmly seen as green jobs so uh whether that's you know ev sorry electric vehicle production or so on but actually looking beyond that to jobs that are green but aren't typically thought of as green so for instance jobs in care that we know are inherently low carbon that we need more of um, and could improve people's lives and so i think that holistic look uh that also speaks to the moment we find ourselves in um in an economic crisis uh, is exactly spot on. And actually one of the founders of Green New Deal UK, Fatima Zara Ibrahim, is a commissioner on our Environmental Justice Commission. I think in terms of how you sell that as a political project, I think I'm probably less certain of. Um, I think it definitely has its place. Um, it's a great mobilising tool. It brings people together around um, a set of demands. Um, but the radical doesn't appeal to everyone. I think a lot of people across the country are actually quite nervous and afraid of the um, afraid of the the changes coming down the track and presenting them as radical or what might be perceived as a bit of a Trojan horse for the left um, can be uh, not always that useful. And I mean, our view at IPPR is that um, we don't describe lots of these policies as radical because we don't think they are. We think they're commensurate to the scale of the challenge that we face and they're the reasonable path forward rather than the radical one. Um, so I think there's a kind of, the Green New Deal was a really useful way to think about policy. Um, and then there's a job for different uh, different politicians, different actors to have conversations with people across the country um, in a way that makes sense to to their lives and the problems that they're currently facing. Thanks. And, and I think this is worth sort of trying to discuss um this last point because I think personally that this is kind of the key really isn't it that um, there is no sort of shortage in the history of this this country of um, detailed worthy sort of reports and policy propositions being put forward but the matter is about gaining that sort of public support and what I hope we seek to do at the, the no man's land is to draw all of these sort of threads together with okay so how do we gain this political center ground how is it possible for a proponent of this program to gain that sort of political center ground so have have ippr worked even themselves or with other groups or individuals on how to sort of deal with the political side of that so how you win public support for all of these things and couch it in terms of people are sort of happy with and willing to support so have you done any sort of work on the, the politics of it all 
Absolutely. And that's really critical to what we are as an organisation. And, you know, we're not an academic institute. We think about these things in terms of um, how they connect to to the politics and we work kind of adjacent to politics. Um, Most kind of, I guess, the biggest thing we've been doing in this space uh, is through our Environmental Justice Commission. Um, We didn't want this to just be a gathering of the great and the good. Uh, Instead, we wanted it to be rooted in how um, ordinary people view these issues. And as such, to inform the work, we've, over the past year, uh, held four citizens' juries um, in Thurrock, in South Wales, in Tees Valley and in Aberdeen, um, where we have spent uh, a number of evenings and weekends uh, speaking with a... um, a kind of a carefully, uh, it's a, a kind of process by which uh, we make sure that the people present are balanced, including in their views on climate change and so on. Um, and we've spent time talking about the evidence uh, with them and supporting them to come up with their own statements. And it's been a completely fascinating process. Um, I think in terms of how people experience that journey and um, in terms of learning about the issues it is quite different you know an approach that might do focus groups and take the views that come out of that as fixed instead we are kind of working with these different groups uh, to help them um come to a decision um but it's been very interesting partly in terms of the importance that this has for lots of people's lives and actually particularly through covid um there really has been a kind of shift amongst people we've been working with in recognising the value of uh, nature and a natural environment around them. Um, And every, almost everybody we worked with said that this was of critical importance. And I think that's, that's quite, quite important because I think no names mentioned, I think there can be some quite lazy stereotypes sometimes about who an environmental agenda is for, who actually cares about it and and who it might appeal to politically. Actually, if you look at some of the work, um, I think it was Onward who've done polling on us recently, uh, some of the kind of polling on red wall voters or so-called red wall voters, uh, this issue actually is really important to people um, and it's not confined to a kind of liberal green southern constituency which can be some of the the lazy stereotyping i think the other part of this um is that we do need really effective uh, stories and narratives to help people understand why the solutions that we're proposing are the ones that are commensurate to to the challenge and to reassure people that actually this isn't all bad news um i think there can be particularly when there's kind of quite sensationalist headlines about what climate change um, or the climate crisis might bring, um, I think people can feel quite disempowered. Um, And instead, what we're trying to do is put forward a positive view that demonstrates the opportunities. Um, And we are seeking to package that in a way that we know people can understand and relate to. Uh, So we've been doing some work, for instance, um, with uh, some framing experts uh, to to help us tell those stories really clearly um, and in a way that connects. Is IPPR trying to forge a new consensus on these issues or is it trying to sort of find a position that uh, is kind of a compromise that builds a broader or builds the broadest church needed to, um, 
I suppose, win these arguments. Do, would you would you say you're in one of those camps or the other? Um, yes, I'd say we're more in the consensus forming uh, camp. I think if you take people's views as fixed and then um, seek to construct a broad church, you risk falling into a kind of lowest common denominator trap, um, which just won't give us the change of of the kind that we need. So we're very much focused on demonstrating, um, you know, through evidence as well as uh, argument and constructing a broad agenda. And um, we're, we're focused on trying to shift that consensus. And I think, you know, it's um, some of the things that might have been true in the past aren't necessarily true today. So if you look at the... Um, I would say a journey that the IMF and the OECD have been on, for instance, in terms of public spending and the risks that poses. Um, I I think we're in a very different place today in terms of uh, how some of those big public institutions view um, interventions of the kind that I'm describing. Um, So I think it is possible to kind of shift those, shift those views when it's really rooted in, academic rigour and in an understanding of how we got here as well as where we need to go. Karis, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Really appreciate that. And it's been uh, really good, really illuminating about how you're both working on these very sort of worthy and important areas, but also crucially trying to both find and forge that sort of centre ground. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk us through all of that. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Our pleasure. Steve, thank you very much for joining me, as always. Thanks, Martin, and thanks again, Karis. And thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast, and goodbye.